Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to Digging Deeper, number 73. Through each episode, we dig deep into topics and questions to see what the Bible says. Why did Jesus start a church when he already had his father's house? Was the Jerusalem temple insufficient? And if so, why? Also, how can Christians share their faith simply when theology is often so complex? More on that later. But first, continuing from episode 71, what does the Bible disclose about rewards at the believer's judgment? Let's find out. I want to get to the last part of Jonathan's questions from a couple of weeks ago about the judgment of believers. And we just ran out of time um, that time. So I really want to pick those up first up here. So just as a refresher, Jonathan says some of the social media replies on the question said the judgment, and that's the judgment of believers, was in a positive sense and on our good works to establish our reward in heaven. Again, is that true? The Bible is clear that the persecuted will be given a reward in heaven, but do our good works establish a reward in heaven also? So will some of us get fewer rewards in heaven than others, and what does that even look like? I think the answer is yes, Jonathan. Yes, there does appear to be heavenly a heavenly reward system in place based on our good works on earth. These rewards are symbolised in the New Testament as crowns. And so we'll whiz through the verses on this just very quickly, and you can take a note of these if you want to and look them up in your own time and reflect on them. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And I'll come back to that verse in a moment. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the way, in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And so it looks like uh, you know, Paul was an apostle. He was writing to his people, the people he had oversight for. And it looks like a, a church leader, a Christian leader, um, the people that they are leading and serving become the crown, uh, figuratively, uh, for that leader. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes is it not you? So kind of same truth there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. So if you want to get rewarded, you have to follow the rules. Fair enough. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. James chapter 1 and verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So if you love the Lord and you persevere through tough times, there's a reward for you. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory 
that will never fade away. And then Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11, I am coming soon, says Jesus, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown or your reward. Again, seems to infer that persistence and, uh, and sticking it out through the tough times of life bring its own reward. Another verse too, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will uh, suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So the reward there is life, zoe in, in the Greek. That means abundant life or life to the full or life in which there is no death. It's absolute life and so probably eternal life there. Don't get hung up on all the details. The devil who puts them into prison to test them may be Satan, but probably is a, a local ruler who was resisting the church and, and, and persecuting Christians. The, the reference to 10 days in prison there probably means that the persecution will be short-lived, but you need to stick it out. You need to be faithful, uh, says John here, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. John, of course, is writing it. Jesus is speaking it. The word crown there in all of those verses is the Greek word stephanos or stephanos, and it is a head wreath that was awarded to a victor in one of the ancient athletic games like the Greek Olympic Games or the Isthmus Games. Notice that the theme that is repeated in the new, by the New Testament writers each time they refer to the victor's crown or the reward in relation to someone competing in, in the games, they're using the example that was extremely familiar to people of their time. They're using the Olympic Games as, um, as an example, the origins of which could be traced back to 776 BC, and they were held every four years, even as they still are. Um, also referring to the Greek Isthmus Games that were staged every two years. The New Testament writers speak of the judgment seat of God or the judgment seat of Christ as the Bema, and that was the throne upon which the judge at the Olympic or Isthmus Games would sit, and then they would rise not to pronounce judgment but to congratulate the victors. And that's a really important perspective here. And the Stephanos... The crowns were the awards that were handed out. So the Bema was the judge's seat in the arena at the Olympic Games, not to punish contestants any more than at the modern Olympics. People get punished if they run anything after third, right? So there is a gold, a silver, and a bronze medal today, but the people that don't achieve one of those are not condemned. They're just not rewarded. And it's the same thing here. Uh, that person at the Bema was there to present awards to the victors. The Olympic Games award was a head wreath of olive leaves that were said to be gathered from the sacred wild olive tree in Olympia. Whether they were or weren't, we're not really sure. The Ismian Games awarded a wreath of celery leaves or a pine garland. As an example of the commitment required of someone competing in those games, those participating in the pentathlon, for example, had to swear to Zeus, 
to follow 10 months of strict training before the Games. And so as Paul states in one of his writings, they do it to get a Stephanos, a reward that will not last. But we do it. We go into strict training. We become disciples, disciplined followers of Jesus uh, to, to get an eternal reward. And so if people can work hard and be self-controlled for 10 months for some salary leaves, how much more incentive do we have as those who follow Jesus Christ? So that's the, the deal with rewards. I've got three other thoughts here. Um, first of all, the crowns are obviously symbolic. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12 says, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. So all of Revelation, of course, is symbolic. It's all allegorical, metaphorical. It's using symbols to convey truth. And so Jesus here is depicted as someone whose eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Now, if you just picture that for a moment, it looks almost comical in my mind because you got Jesus here. If this was literal, he's got all these crowns and he's kind of doing a balancing act, trying to trying to balance all of these crowns upon his head. And so the crowns are obviously symbolic. What the New Testament writers are doing is tapping into the culture of the day and they're, they're drawing examples from culture to illustrate spiritual truth. They're leading people from the things they do know into areas of spiritual truth that they might not be aware of. And so the crowns are symbolic. Uh, what will we do with our crowns and our rewards? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne. And uh, I think there's a wonderful truth there that there will be rewards, but then we also recognise that all of the rewards are ultimately because of what God has done in and through our lives and so it's like we cast our rewards down in front of Jesus and just give him all of the glory and all of the praise. And what will happen if I don't get any crowns? Well, I think there's another verse in Revelation that could be appropriate there as well. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so it appears that there could be sadness on that day. We're standing before the Lord and maybe, you know, we, we, there's a tinge of sadness, something that I did that I shouldn't have done, something that I, I, I didn't do that maybe I could have done. And so there's that sadness, but then God comes along and, and dries our eyes for us, uh, which is wonderful as well. I think a, a final truth here, which I need to emphasize is really important. And that is that church leaders will be judged or assessed more strictly there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that addresses this. Paul is using two illustrations regarding the church in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He's talking about fields and buildings, and he writes the following words. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, 
because the day will bring it to light. The day there, capital D, talking about the day of judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Again, this is highly symbolic. So Paul is here, he's talking about himself as a pastor, as an apostle, as a wise builder. So he went in, he planted a church, he stayed with it for a few weeks, a few months, moved on, did the same in the next town. Uh, as he revisited all of the churches and towns on his way back, he would then appoint leaders. So people in the congregation who kind of kind of rose to the top, as it were, um, who were standout with their gifts and their character as people who could join a team and lead this fledgling church. And so he's saying, I, I came in, I planted this congregation and I laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And now I've appointed other leaders and make sure that they build upon the foundation of Jesus with care. And uh, then he talks about our works being gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay and straw, and those works being tested by fire. Now, again, as I say, highly symbolic. Our works are not going to be placed on a conveyor belt on the day of judgment and go through a furnace and see what comes out the other side. Paul is using things we know to teach about things we don't know, and he's using these things, the, the, the things like gold, silver, and costly stones. When they are put into fire, they're refined, they're improved. But if you put uh, things like wood, hay, and straw in fire, they're destroyed. And so there's a wonderful truth here. The other truth, of course, is that our salvation is not in question. Our salvation is not according to our works, but is according to our faith in the finished work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, the other verse that has really gripped me for decades now, right from the beginning of my pastoral life, and that is James chapter 3 and verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so he's talking about people like myself who teach the word of God to those who follow Jesus. And, and I take this so very seriously because on the day of Jesus, I don't, on the judgment seat of, of Christ, I, I don't just give an account for myself. I give an account for what I have taught to you and every person that has ever been under my pastoral care, anyone that's ever listened to my teaching on a podcast or on, on video or online, you know, um, whatever shape or form, or in a church or church online, wherever I've taught the word, whoever has listened and taken that word seriously, I will be judged more strictly on those things. And so I've got to tell you, I, I take this very seriously. I study hard and diligently. If I don't know the answer, I go and find out. I don't talk about things I don't know about. I'm very, very cautious on what I say and how I teach. And if I'm not sure about something, I'll say. If there are different views on something, as you know, I'll, I'll talk about the various views and, and, and the one that I kind of feel the most strongly about. And if I'm not, if I haven't landed somewhere yet, 
as to an opinion, I'll also be honest about that because I really don't want to lead anybody astray. That's not on my heart at all. I want to teach the truth. And so that gives you some good insight into the New Testament teaching on eternal rewards. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Jesus said to his parents, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? That's Luke chapter 2. Later on, Jesus says in Matthew 16, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. So Mark's question, just wondering, why the father's house became inadequate, that Jesus felt the need to build his own church. It's a fascinating question, Mark, and I'll do my very best to answer it. Luke chapter 2 moves very quickly. Have a read of it sometime and you'll see that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is born, uh, then he's presented in the temple, that's 40 days later, and then suddenly he's 12. (laughs) And, And then Luke tells us that every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Now, only men were required to go uh, to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, and I'm not sure whether that was every year or not or whether they just had to make the pilgrimage maybe once in their life or on a semi-regular basis. And so only men were required to go, and so the fact that Mary went every year shows just how committed she was to her faith in God. Luke's gospel records one such trip to the Passover festival when Jesus was 12 years of age. And I'll read those verses to you from Luke chapter 2. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Amazing, isn't it? So here they are, they're in in Jerusalem for Passover and they're obviously with either a, a large family group or maybe a large village group. Maybe they all travelled together from Nazareth, which is very likely. Uh, they travelled as a community Uh, for community, for friendship, and also for safety because travel on the roads back in first century Palestine was uh, not a safe thing. There were lots of bandits, robbers, etc., and so people would travel together. And it takes a village to raise a child, and so these people were all together, and Mary and Joseph probably just presumed that Jesus was somewhere 
with the family or with the community. Now, it doesn't tell us how long they traveled away from Jerusalem for before they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. It does tell us that they had searched for him for three days. And so it's likely that, I mean, maybe they traveled for a day away and then they're like, has anyone seen Jesus? And no one had seen Jesus. Then they traveled for a day back, possibly. And then maybe they spent a day looking for Jesus. We really don't know. But one thing we do know is that they would have been frantic. I remember being in the United States uh, many years ago with Christy and Gigi and Paris. Paris was three. So Georgia Grace would have been six, maybe six and a half. And uh, we were in a department store. I think it was Macy's from memory. And we were doing a little bit of shopping because clothes are ridiculously cheap in the US. So we'd be buying some some clothes and then suddenly realized that Paris was missing. And we were trying to find her everywhere. And we were frantic. It was about nine o'clock at night and there'd been kidnappings locally. And we think, oh my goodness, this is awful. We alerted the security people in the department store and they were really concerned as well. They ended up locking the department store down and, and putting an announcement over the PA system. And then after a few minutes of this, little cheeky three-year-old Paris popped out between two racks of clothing. She had been hiding from us. Now, we were relieved but also really angry <laughs> And you imagine, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm saying, right? Oh, I'm so glad you are, you're back. Don't you ever do that to me again. And I can imagine that Jesus' uh, parents <laughs> were just like that as well. I kind of feel that Luke's understatement there, you know, your father and I had been anxiously searching for you, really doesn't do justice to the emotion that these, this couple would have been feeling with their 12-year-old missing uh, in, in a large city at a feast time. This account in Luke 2 shows Jesus' self-awareness as well as mindfulness of his mission. In this regard, it's interesting to note that at least some of Jesus' younger years would have been filled with feelings of being different. Although I don't doubt that he enjoyed boyish things when he was younger, it was also increasingly aware of who he was and why he was on earth. This no doubt caused conflict at times with his siblings, something that is reflected in the gospel accounts, of course, um, where Jesus had begun his ministry. And we read in John chapter 7 and Luke 3 that his brothers and sisters didn't believe in him and actually were quite cynical about him. And, and we understand that as well. I mean, if um, one of my kids just announced to the other two, oh, by the way, I'm really God in human form, and uh, I'm here to save hu humanity, uh, the other two girls might be fairly um, cynical about that pronouncement. And so it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that his brothers and sisters believed in him as well. And, of course, that would do it, wouldn't it? I mean, if you'd watched your brother be crucified, if you'd watched him die, if you'd watched a soldier stick a spear uh, into your brother's side, and then you watched him be buried. And then three days later, he's walking around chatting with you. Suddenly you would think maybe he was right all the time. And that's what happened with Jesus' family. Anyway, back to Mark's question. Jesus appeared to be quite at home in the temple, which he called my father's house. 
But years later, he told Peter that he would build his church. So Mark's question again, why did the father's house become inadequate so that he felt the need to build his own church? I think the answer is this. The father's house was the temple in Jerusalem. It was a building in a city and Jewish believers, as well as Gentile proselytes or Gentile converts to Judaism, would travel from all over the world to worship in in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, The Gentiles, of course, weren't allowed in the temple proper, but there was a, a court outside the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And then women had their, Jewish women had their own court, um, and then Jewish men had their own court, and never the twain shall meet. <clears throat> so the New Testament then reveals, um, oh, sorry, I should say God's plan was for a new temple that was not limited to a particular location. And so understanding this, that back in the day, if you wanted to worship, you had to travel from wherever you were to Israel, to Jerusalem, and then worship in the temple. And then you had to make the trip home again. And so God's plan right from the start was for a new temple that was not going to be limited to a particular location. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that's the revelation that we then find in the New Testament, because the New Testament reveals that our bodies individually, as well as believers collectively, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at some scripture here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So he's writing this to the church and he's talking about the church here as a gathering or as a collection of believers all together in one place. And he, he calls the Corinthian church collectively God's temple. God's spirit dwells amongst you or in your midst. Uh, And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he talks about human bodies as individual temples. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. And so here he's still writing to the church and he's saying each of you individually as believers your bodies are temples, which, which the Spirit of God comes and lives in, dwells in. But then when you gather together, it's like you take all of your temples and you join together and you become a whole temple and God's Spirit dwells in your midst. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. And so I said before, you know, in the temple, the Jewish temple in in, in Jerusalem, that there was a court of Gentiles outside the temple and then the Jewish courts, one of women, one of men, inside the temple. And so there was this separation of Jew and Gentile in the temple worship in Jerusalem. But Paul then writes these amazing words in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes about the bringing together of both Jew and Gentile. And he says this, for through him we are Jesus. We both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, talking about the Gentiles with the Jews, God's people, the Jews, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, of course, 
our New Testament, the prophets are from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew scriptures, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So he's using here again the analogy of the building, two walls, one of them is Jews, one of them Gentiles, and the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so here he's writing to Jew and Gentile together, and he's saying all of you together, one house that God is building together to dwell in by his spirit. And so the two become one. And so, Mark, I believe the Father's house, the Jerusalem temple, became inadequate because it was limited. God wanted to dwell in people and not in a building. Jesus foretold this in John 4 during his fascinating discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he said these words in John 4, verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This truth, I think, is very important. The scriptures repeatedly teach that God, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. God is everywhere. His spirit fills all things. His temple is your body as well as being a collection of believers together uh, that we refer to as the church. Christians call it the church. The church is not the building. Okay, so important. We talk about, oh, did you go to the church? Or I left my Bible in the church. No, you left it in the church building. I'm very grateful for our building at Bayside Church. I think it's fantastic. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we bought a warehouse in 1999 and we moved into it. We fitted it out and we've done renovations and various changes to it over the last couple of decades, and it is a a wonderful facility. It's a great place to meet. It's a wonderful place to work from, but it's not a church. It's a converted factory. (laughs) It's an old printing factory. And uh, so the church is people, the, the temples of God who come together as a temple. And so the church gathers and, uh, we go, when we say we go to church, what we mean is we're going to gather with the other temples, the other believers. And so we don't go to a building, but rather we gather with other people in a building. Okay. So, or not, you don't have to meet in a building. You'd be with a group of believers at the beach or a group of believers worshiping together in a park somewhere. Or as I've done on many occasions when I've been in um, some of the remote parts of uh, African countries, uh, meeting in an old mud hut that's been erected in a week just for a bunch of new believers who want to get together and worship God. And I tell you what, wherever you are with God's people worshiping together, God's spirit is right there in your midst. And so there's the short answer to the question. God wanted 
um, a, a church, a, a group of Gentiles and Jews together who could worship God anywhere at any time and not be limited to one place and one time. Given the shortcomings of the atonement theories and the extensive explanations in your cross-examined series, how does one then evangelize or share their faith in a few minutes or briefly to a non-believer? Godfrey, I think the answer to your question lies in a definition of two things here. One of them is evangelism and the other is theology. So you use the word to evangelize there. To evangelize means to share your faith with another person. And ultimately, I guess, when you share your faith with someone, um, that the hope is that they may understand something of your faith and maybe just maybe become a believer as well. So someone shared their faith in Jesus with me when I was 19. And over the process of time, I became convinced and fascinated and drawn by what they shared with me and uh, eventually became a believer in Jesus as well. So that is to evangelize. But there's something very different, and that is theology. Theology is the study of God or the knowledge of God. It comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning the knowledge or study of. So theology, theos, logos, being the knowledge or the study of God. Now, when we talk about God, we're talking about a spiritual being who is immense, right? He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, and he's an eternal being as well. And so there is so much to know, and, and we can never even know everything when it comes to God. And so the study of God is going to be immense. It's going to be deep. It's going to be complex because there's so much to know. But the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is incredibly simple. In fact, it can be summed up in just a few words. I love the story of Karl Barth. He was a German theologian. He's passed away now. But uh, Karl Barth was often regarded as the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century. His prolific theological studies and writings shaped a century and were instrumental in combating liberal theology. His commentary titled The Epistle to the Romans is considered by many to be one of the most important theological treatises of all time. Bath's theology found its most sustained and compelling expression through his 13-volume magnum opus titled Church Dogmatics that is widely regarded as one of the most important theological works of the century. I mean, can you imagine uh, this work of um, systematic theology, 13 volumes, over 6 million words and 8,000 pages. It's one of the longest works of systematic theology ever written, and it was written by this one man by the name of Karl Barth. And yet there was a, a time in his old age, Karl Barth was visiting Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago during his lecture tour of the US back in 1962. After his lecture, during a Q&A time, a student asked him if he could summarize his whole life's worth, a work, in theology in one sentence. 
And Bath responded, yes, I can, in his beautiful English with a strong German accent. He says, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't that magnificent? That story beautifully illustrates the difference between evangelism, sharing the gospel, and theology. One is simple and the other can be incredibly complex. Karl Barth was a man of great learning, understanding, and maturity, but he did not lose touch with the simple gospel. A simple gospel is a message. It's so simple that even a child can understand it. Just as Jesus said, he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change, he's talking to a bunch of adults here, men and women. He said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a fascinating statement. If you looked at that in context, he's actually talking to some of his disciples who were having an argument about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest? Jesus, is it me? And he looks at them and he, and he points to a little child and he says, he's probably just shaking his head in frustration at these young men and says, unless you change and become like this little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never know what it's like. So he's talking there about simplicity and trust. Consider Paul's writings uh, to the Corinthian church. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Very easy to understand. Uh, who Jesus is, God in human form, and what he did. He lived, he died, he rose again, he lives forever. And uh, he's conquered sin, he's conquered death, he's, he's conquered the devil. And everyone who believes in him, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's very, very simple. <clears throat> it's a very easy message to understand. Little children in our church understand this and, and give their lives to Jesus and get baptised. Very, very simple. But then there's lots of complex things as well. Uh, Paul writes in this way about the cross. He said also to the Corinthians, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He just wanted the simple message of the cross. But then in a later epistle, the apostle Peter writes this about Paul's writings. He says in 2 Peter 3.16, His letters, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand. And so Paul wanted the Corinthians to remain simple in their faith. When it came to Jesus, the understanding of the gospel, uh, he, he wanted to remain simple, like Karl Barth as well. But it doesn't mean that he didn't also understand highly complex things. So things. So the gospel is simple. Theology can be complex. And so what I've been teaching in that blog on atonement theories and uh, in the series on called Cross-Examined is some of the deeper theology of Jesus and the cross, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. But, but all the way through, I've also said, so that's the theology here, and then I've said, and this is how it applies to our lives each day. And that to me is the most important thing. Because ultimately, all truth has to be embodied. All truth has to be embodied. 
Uh, it has to be lived out. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of facts that we stick in our heads. And so really important that we don't just have facts as head knowledge, but when we read something, when we hear a message, that we go, oh, wow, that's amazing. How does this apply to my life? How will my life be different? How will it be better tomorrow than it was today as a result of me learning this? And so with the cross, we've been looking at how the cross um, impacts our daily life. And so remember that, you know, it doesn't matter how complex you get in your understanding of theology, the gospel still is simple. And be able to, just like Karl Barth, be able to say, you know, wow, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And, and never lose touch with the simplicity of the gospel. And when someone is ready for you to share, when they ask you, tell me about your faith, be ready to share it in a really pure and simple way. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please get in touch with us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page or email connect at baysidechurch.com.au. Here at Digging Deeper, we're taking a short break for Melbourne's winter. The next episode will go live on Wednesday, July 19. We'll see you then.